Lord, we ask that in our time today that we might encourage one another, that we might build one another up, that when we leave this place, we will leave it fresh, Lord, with a fresh love for you and a fresh love for one another. And that that love for you and that love for one another might dictate we, what we do all week to your glory and to the edification of those around us. So, Lord, as I prepare to open your word and share with this, your people, the word and the message that you've given me, I pray, Father, that your words will be spoken. And, Lord, if there's an error that I make here, I pray that you will erase it from memories. But, Lord, I thank you for the gift of prayer, and I pray that you will help me, Lord, to help others in this room today understand what an incredible gift you've given us in prayer. In Jesus' most precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, the passage is going to come from James 5. It's going to be verses 13 to 20. So if you would start looking there, making your way there, I'm going to open with an introduction, then we're going to read that together. Okay? This morning, we're actually going to finish our look at the book of James. It's been a long time, and it's been a wonderful read. Um, there is so much instruction that's jammed into those five chapters. If you've ever asked yourself, how do I live my faith in a practical way? James is the book for you. James encourages us to examine how we live and see if we're actually living what it is that we say that we believe. He provides specific examples throughout the book of how we can live our faith, how we can show a living faith to those around us. And today, James ends his message by demonstrating the power and value of prayer in the life of a believer. So have you ever been talking to another believer and had them explain something in their lives that was critical to them or very important to them or maybe something they were very grateful for? And you told them, I'm going to pray for you about that. Do you always remember to go back and pray? Or does that need or maybe that joy go unshared or that need go unprayed for? And what about this phrase? Have you ever heard anybody say this? All we can do now is pray. What else could we do? Right? What more powerful tool could we bring to a situation than prayer? But we don't do that. Rather than pray and truly grasp what it is we're doing for that person, we have a tendency to want to fix things ourselves. We want to grab a hold of it and we want to make it right. That's what we want to do. And it's not till we get to the end of our own abilities that we stop and recognize and ask for God's help in this situation. I think we have it backwards. I think we're doing something wrong when we start off trusting ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to do the best we can with the situations God's given us. He's given us skills. He's given us abilities. He's even given us technology these days. We can do a lot with what God has given us, and we should. But wouldn't we do a whole lot better if the first thing we did was take those needs to God? If we were to trust in God and his love for us first and more than we trust in the things he's given us, maybe we'd do better. Just some food for thought there. Let's look at our passage together today, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James saved this critical subject of prayer for last. And it's important that we grasp the significance of it. That we truly understand its power and its value in the life of a believer. Charles Spurgeon understood the power of prayer. Charles Spurgeon credited the success of his church and the movement that God or the lives that God changed there with the people that were constantly praying in the background. Sorry, let me move this. I could get excited today. Let's make sure there's room. All right. So Spurgeon credited prayer. He credited those who gave their lives to prayer for the success of his ministry. Ephesians 6.18 shows us, after listing all of the armor of God, Ephesians 6.18 talks about prayer. It's that offensive strategy that we can use in the spiritual warfare that we fight. It is a critically important tool and we make a mistake when we don't use it. So my goal today is to help everybody in the room refresh their love for prayer. And law enforcement is what I know. I've been doing it for over 25 years. And in law enforcement, when we really want to dig into something, we approach it from a number of perspectives. And we ask a number of questions. And those perspectives are who, what, when, where, why, and how. If you can legitimately answer the who, what, when, where, why, and how of any topic, you can be pretty confident that you've got it right. And you can typically convince others that you've got it right. So today, we are going to examine prayer from those same perspectives. The, with the purpose of demonstrating its power, and the value, and to convince or remind us that it must be a foundational practice in the life of every believer. So let's start with this perspective that defines the issue, the what. What is prayer? You can see one characteristic of prayer in a story that Jesus told in Luke 18, where he compares the prayer styles of a Pharisee and a tax collector. In verse 13 we read, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You can see here that his prayer is raw, it's humble, and it's pleading. He's not worried about impressing everybody with words. It is from his heart, it is the desire of his heart that he be forgiven. And he is not too proud to simply lay it out there. That is a characteristic of prayer. Now, in our passage today, there are a number of other characteristics that we can see. 
And I want to point them out because we see prayer, we see what prayer is about in more detail. And I'm not sure that I've done this as well as I would like, but I'm praying God's going to use it well beyond what I've done. As I talk about these characteristics of prayer, if we talk about what prayer is about, please grasp the significance of it because there is, this is what everything is going to be based on. We have to understand what prayer is. Prayer is personal, focused, honest communication between you and God. Grasp who you're talking to here. This isn't a good conversation between me and a friend like Jan or Manny or Travis or Harold or any of these other guys in here that I've actually sat down and had some great conversations with. This is conversation with, between yourself and God. Please don't lose track of that. Prayer is who, what we do. It's a tool we use to acknowledge who we are and the difference between who we are and the righteousness that God demands of us. We see that prayer is a tool that we use to lift up our loved ones before a loving God and pray for their salvation. If you have unsaved loved ones in your home, you know how much you've laid your heart before God on this topic. This is the tool that God has given us to do that with. Prayer is the way we ask when we have legitimate questions. God is God. We can't wrap our minds around Him. The finite cannot surround the infinite. We have questions about God. It's okay to ask them. Prayer is your time to ask those questions. Prayer is where we ask our loving God for the things that we need, trusting that He will give us what we need. And if you're saved, He already has. Everything else is gravy. Prayer is how we give God the provision, give God thanks for the provision that He's made for us already, both past and future. We see that prayer is where we get to tell God how wonderful we know He is and express our gratitude for what He's done for us. Prayer is where we joyfully acknowledge that God is our source of hope for the future. Believers, if your hope is somewhere else, it's misplaced. And when you take the time to thank God for that, you should be doing that in prayer. And the prayer is a tool that we can use to help bring back those who are struggling in their faith. As we've talked about, in, or as the, the scripture tells us there in verse 19, we can use prayer to bring back those who are struggling. So now hopefully, I've provided you with a refreshed understanding of what prayer is, and hopefully some sense of the value of it in the prayer, in the daily lives of believers. So we're ready to move on to the next perspective, and that's how. How do we pray? Jesus, when he wanted to teach his disciples how to pray, provided them instruction that their prayers must be done with a heart that reflects humility before God. Jesus' first direction is to recognize who it is that we are coming before and humbly place his will above our own. Jesus has us focus our prayers on God's glory and subject our wills to his. Now this is a comforting way to pray. 
Because when we pray this way, we recognize the fact that God's will for our lives is better than anything we could want. When you spend the time focusing your, your mind on what God's will is for your life and willing, being willing to set aside your own in order to be submission, submissive to His, you're, you will, it can't help but remind you whose hands your life is in. And uh, I know a lot of really neat people, but I can't think of any of them that I would rather have control of my life than God Himself. And after we've taken time to recognize God and gladly submit our wills to His, He instructs us to make our needs known. We make our needs known to a loving Father who is capable of meeting those needs. We don't tell God what we need because He doesn't know. We tell God what we need because it's our chance to humble ourselves before Him and let Him know what our concerns are, what our needs are. And let him know that we trust him to meet those. When we let God know what we need, we glorify him as the provider, and we build our own faith when we see him meet those needs. Likewise, you may find yourself praying for a reasonable request, an entirely appropriate request, that God just simply hasn't given. Don't lose hope. Recognize that God's will will be done in His time and trust that He has a reason for delaying or denying your request, knowing that His will for His children is always good. In this too, God is glorified and our faith is strengthened. Next, Jesus focuses on forgiveness. Now, I have a friend, his name is John Ponder, and he runs a ministry called Hope for Prisoners. Anybody ever heard of Hope for Prisoners? Right? It's a ministry that I've been on the outskirts of with John um, based on my, my job, right? Because he uses a lot of law enforcement officers in that ministry. And one of the primary tools John uses in that ministry is the tool of forgiveness. He deals with some people who've committed some pretty serious crimes. They've done some pretty terrible things. But he teaches them that when they seek forgiveness... It's extended to them. And they don't have to continue to go around hiding their sins or living their lives like they still owe a debt for what they've done wrong. And I've been there when he's interacted with these people and the light switch has come on. And you can see the burden lifted from these people. You can see the hope that they have when they feel like they've been forgiven. It's an incredible thing. And it has an impact on their lives. Now, if you're here today and you trust Jesus for your salvation, you know that same sense of release, correct? But sometimes we spend too much time focusing on our sins, don't we? It's real easy for us to see where we fail, God. That's the enemy's plan. Keep us focused on that, right? Because the more he can keep us on focused on how terrible we are and how wrong the things are that we do, the more he's going to achieve what he hopes to achieve. Because the more we focus on our sin, the harder it is to see God's forgiveness. Please don't lose sight of the truth of forgiveness. When God forgives us, he separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he no longer holds us accountable for those sins. We are completely free 
of the guilt associated with those sins that we have sought forgiveness for. And Jesus also, in, when teaching us to prayer, to pray, taught us that we are to extend this same forgiveness to those who seek it from us. Please do not harbor anger when somebody comes to you and asks you for your forgiveness. And don't try to judge how legitimate their forgiveness is. Simply extend them the forgiveness as we're taught to do. And finally, Jesus teaches us to pray that we may not be led into temptation, but rather that God would deliver us from evil. As we saw in James 1.13, God tempts no one. So why would we pray that he not, that he'd lead us out of temptation? We pray that because naturally we are not going to walk away from temptation, folks. Is that, if, that's, if it's true of you that you have no problem with temptation, God bless you. Right? That is not the truth for me. I will naturally run to sin. That's my nature before God changed my heart. Now I struggle with it, and I struggle to stay away from it. But by praying that God will keep me from it, it helps me to understand that the sin that I sometimes choose over God is an affront to Him. It helps me to understand the significance of sin. And I pray daily that He will deliver me from temptation. And I hope that you all do too. Because that's the only way that we can overcome our sinful desires. And when we do so, again, God is glorified. So how do we pray? We come humbly before God, worshiping Him for His goodness, submitting our wills to His, asking Him for the things that we need, seeking forgiveness for our sins, and pleading for His help in overcoming temptation. So now that we've examined prayer, what it is, and, and uh, how we go about it, let's look at why. Why we should pray. And the first, simple, first reason is very simple. We're commanded to. Men, as leaders, we are commanded to pray for our families and all those that fall under our authority. 1 Samuel 12, 23 says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. When we don't pray for those under our authority, we are sinning against the Lord. Did you know that? When I read this, that was like a wake-up call for me. Don't get me wrong. I pray for my family, and I pray for the men and women in the, the bureau that I lead, and I pray for our church. But I didn't realize that I'm sinning when I don't. So since I started this study, I find myself praying for that group of people, or those groups of people, much more fervently and much more regularly. And it's my hope that right now somebody in this group is saying, oh, that's me. I need to do the same thing. Men, we are called to lead. I don't care what society says. You are responsible for your families. Pray for them. Constantly pray for them. Don't let them down. I have failed in this area more times than I can say. It breaks my heart to think about it. But it doesn't matter where you are right now. Do better. Because you can. And this doesn't just apply to church leaders. 
As Christians, we are commanded to be in prayer, and we are sinning against the Lord if we're not praying for our families and for everybody under our authority. The second reason we should pray is because prayer is one of the tools God uses to accomplish His will. And His will is to bring Himself glory, which brings us joy. We may pray and God doesn't grant our wishes or has us wait a long time to see the prayers answered. But do not stop praying. As we see in Jesus' parable of the persistent widow, we should always pray and never lose heart. The fact that we are able to stand before God and make our petitions known to Him is both glorifying for Him and edifying for us. We fulfill His will, and we also get a side benefit out of it. How incredible is that? And that brings us to the third reason we should pray, for the glory of God. Providence Reformed Church gathers here for the purpose of glorifying God. And we glorify Him when we pray. Just look at the elements of prayer. first element of prayer is adoration, where we tell God how much we love Him and why. The second element is confession, where we let Him know that we understand that we aren't perfect. And we lay that before His feet. And we humbly come before Him and acknowledge our weaknesses. The third element is thanksgiving. And in thanksgiving, we express our gratitude from everything, from His breath that is in our lungs to His grace by which He drew us to Himself. Constantly showing Him how thankful that we are. And the fourth element is supplication, where we make our requests known to Him. God is glorified in all four elements of prayer. As believers, we should have no higher goal than the glory of God. Now the fourth reason we should pray is for our own edification. And that's another reason that we meet here at Grace. I'm sorry, at Providence. We might meet under God's grace here at Providence. That's what I was trying to fix that with. So another goal of Providence is to edify or build up one another in our faith. To encourage each other in our daily efforts to live holy and God-honoring lives. And corporate prayer allows us to do that. When we pray corporately, we are reminded how spectacularly worthy God is. We get to hear others share what He has done in their lives, and we are blessed with the privilege of bringing their requests before Him, knowing that He cares and welcomes those requests. We can also encourage one another in that although He welcomes requests, God may not give us everything we ask for, but He will give us what He has for us. And what He has for us will always be the best thing for us. When we experience answered prayer, whether it's prayer on a huge scale like salvation or physical healing for friends or somebody that we've been praying for, or on a smaller scale, right, where God gets you through teaching a message without sounding too stupid. It's an answer to prayer. And we're grateful for it. And in each of those situations, we get to see God at work. That strengthens our faith. And it causes us to rejoice in our Savior. When God answers our prayer, we see His many attributes on display. And even when God does not grant us what we ask, we see that He is in control and we find our peace and our rest in Him. 
And that is edifying for us as it is glorifying for him. So now that we've investigated the how, or the what, the why, it's time to move to the who. Who should be praying? The, the, the who perspective proposes two questions. Who should pray and who should we pray for? So let's start by answering the first question. Who should, who should pray? In verses 13 to 17, we see there are a variety of people who should pray. The first type of person who should pray is a suffering those who need hope. And this applies to all of us from time to time. So if you were in Sunday school today, you got to hear Eric share a quote that I'm now going to steal. Thank you, Eric. And it was from Doug Wilson, I believe, is the one that said it. He says, your trials fit you better than an Armani suit. Do you understand the point of that? Your trials are custom made for you by a father who loves you enough to keep working on you. Isn't that great? Whether your pain that you're dealing with is physical or emotional, we should pray and lift our concerns up to a caring Father who loves us and has our best in mind. When we focus, when our focus is on Jesus and the incredible love He has for us and the fact that He has suffered and died to save us, it gives us hope to endure the suffering that we're going through. Believers, when we suffer, we must hold on to Scripture, such as Romans 5, 3 to 5, that reminds us of the value of suffering and preparing us for the life to live for the one who died for us. That passage in Romans says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As blood-bought believers, when we suffer, we know that we have the privilege of calling out to our Savior and reminding Him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him out of them all. We don't remind Him of this because He forgot. Rather, we remind him of it because it gives us hope to speak it. Knowing that he is both loving and unchanging and that he will keep all of his promises. The next people group who should pray are sinners. Anybody in here? You don't have to raise your hand. I already know you. In verse 14, we see that sinners, we see sinner referred to as the sick. The synonymous use of the two words is also seen in Mark 2.17, where Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In verse 16 of today's scripture, we sinners are all called to pray for one another. As sinners, we should pray because in doing so, we humbly recognize our ongoing need for the Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives that honor God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And isn't that what Christ commanded us to do? Who else should pray? James reminds us in verse 17 that the prayers of an average guy, Elijah, were used to both cause and end a three-and-a-half-year drought. This further demonstrates that we all need to be praying, even average people. 
There is no need for you to doubt the value of the power of your prayer when you, are keep, when you pray in keeping with God's will, as the tax collector did. When you were saved, Christ's righteousness was imputed to you, and the prayers of the righteous are powerful. The privilege of prayer is not reserved for church leadership or those super Christians among us who've earned God's ear, right? Because they live that kind of life and you just know that God is going to listen to them. Has anybody ever come up to you and said, hey, will you pray for me? Because I know God listens to you. Me neither. But I heard it happens. (laughs) I I know this happens. And actually, I have actually seen people approach somebody and say, would you pray for me? Because I know. And it's it's unbelievers. And they're reaching out. They're looking for some sort of hope, right? They truly believe that this person has got an advantage that God listens to them. And to some degree, they're right, right? God, the prayer of the righteous is a powerful tool. The good news is, if you are a blood-bought believer, you're that righteous. Everybody in this room is righteous as a blood-bought believer. Your prayer is a powerful tool. You don't need to look to someone else for prayer. Don't, I'm not saying don't pray together. Do that. Pray together. But don't minimize who you are as a blood-bought child of God. Pray. Take these things to God. You are worthy, and he wants to hear from you. Okay, so now that we've taken a look at who James tells us we need to pray for, or who needs to pray, let's take a look at who we need to pray for. First, we need to be praying for the lost. And here I'm going to focus on those we know personally, not just the lost in general. We all know someone who needs God's salvation, whether it's a family member, a co-worker, a friend. We all have at least one person that God has brought into our lives who's in need of salvation. We all agree, because Scripture clearly teaches it, that God must draw believers to himself for salvation. But none of us knows who it is that he has called and who it is that he hasn't. So we need to pray for every unsaved person in our sphere of influence because we just don't know. And if you love those people, you will pray for them. Your love for them will drive you to to your knees because you have a burning desire to see them come to know Christ. So pray for those who are unsaved. We also should pray for those who are reaching out to the lost and the rebellious. We need to be praying for missionaries who are working overseas, inside our nations, and inside our own homes. Those who are seeking to share the gospel with those around them. Pleading with God for his mercy on the lost and those in rebellion. Salvation is not a work of man. It's a supernatural work of God as we see throughout the scriptures, including Acts 16, 14. He opened her heart so that she gave heed to what Paul said. In Ezekiel 36, 26, I will pray that he will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Because this work is beyond the ability of the missionary, they must constantly be in prayer, depending on the will and work of God in the lives of those he brings them into contact with. And brothers and sisters, we must be supporting them with our prayers. 
Church, are we all praying for those we support financially? Or are we just giving and saying, okay, that takes care of that? We have a missionary who is in a closed state. He's been imprisoned multiple times. He's in danger of being imprisoned again. I'm not even going to say his name because I don't want to put it out on the internet. But we support him financially as a church. But how often do we pray for him? How many of you would like to be in a position like that man is in and not be able to count on everybody you know lifting you up in prayer? Let's pray for those who are out taking the gospel to the world. They face trials. They face tribulation. And they deserve our prayer support. So now let's take a look at when we should pray, the when perspective. In verses 13 to 15, we see that there are a number of times when we should pray. And while this list is not exhaustive, it's a good place to start. In verse 13, we see that we should pray when we are suffering persecution. When we are suffering persecution, we are called to be in prayer not only for ourselves, right? I mean, you do want to pray that God would relieve persecution sometimes, do you not? I know I would. But we're also supposed to pray for those who are persecuting us. That's a supernatural act right there in and of itself, isn't it? But that's what we're called to do. When we pray for those who are persecuting us, we recognize something. We recognize something important. We recognize that that person persecuting us is going to face the wrath of God. And we pray for them because we pray that he will change their heart before it's too late and before they have to face that final wrath. Because there is nothing that anyone can do to us but take us, take our lives. But when they do that, what's going to happen for us? You know, I have a friend, and, and he always says, I always ask him, how you doing? Well, I'm alive. And I want to tell him, brother, it can get better. Right? You know, the other option is fantastic. Right? That's the worst they can do to us. But if that person dies without God changing their heart, it's, it's just unfathomable. So pray for those people who persecute you. Pray for them not because you want to revenge what they're doing to you. Pray for them knowing what it is that they're going to face if God doesn't change their heart. And when we're being persecuted and we're praying, we have promises we can cling to. Promises that the Lord made us such as the one in 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So when you're suffering, pray for those who are persecuting you and for God to be glorified in this situation, knowing that he will use your suffering for his glory, and you will be edified in it as well when you see the results. In verse 14, we see the next time we should pray, and that's when we or those we know and support are witnessing to the lost, as I said a few minutes ago. As we saw, salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit, and we must pray that those who are reaching out are trusting in the Holy Spirit for the work, and not their own strengths and abilities. I can guarantee you that missionary I mentioned earlier is certainly not trusting in his own courage and strength and ability. He is trusting in the Spirit of the Lord. And I am grateful for it. And there are a lot of lives that will be changed because of what he's doing. 
We must pray for protection as the gospel is proclaimed to a lost world. In verse 15, we see the need to pray for one another when we sin. Praying that God will convict us when we fail. As James told us in 2.24, faith without works is dead. Now when we discussed that passage, we talked about the importance of the work of repentance. When we sin and realize that we're sinning, we need to humble ourselves before God and turn from that sin and repent of it. When we recognize our sinfulness, prayer is the tool that we use to repent. And we lay our hearts bare before our Savior, asking Him for His forgiveness and depending on Him for the strength to stop walking in sin. We derive our strength to overcome sin from the Holy Spirit, and often the Holy Spirit uses others to help us overcome our sin. In verse 16 of this morning's passage, we're called on to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. I am going to ask you to raise your hand here. Raise your hand if you're really good at confessing your sins to your brothers and sisters. Right? We don't do that so well. Why shouldn't we, right? We confess to God. Isn't that all we need to do? Confessing to God is what we need to do. But how do we improve our walks with God? We do. We do. Brothers and sisters, you need to identify someone who you can be accountable to as well. Nobody believes that any of us are without sin, but we sure do like to act like we are, aren't we? Yep. How are you? Oh, great. How are you? Great. Right? If we were honest, would that be the answer? Right? If we were honest, it'd probably be like, oh, man, I have messed up so much today. Right? I am just not, I am down on myself because I am not honoring God with my thoughts, with my words, with my actions. I'm having a terrible day. Is that what we say? What do we say? Great. How are you? Right? <laughs> Fine. Yes, very good. Well said, Alan. As you may remember from James 1.15, when we allow our pride to hide our sins, what happens? Right? When we allow our pride to hide our, our evil intent, it grows. What does it grow into? It grows into sin. I heard from a friend today about a third party, or not today, but this week, I heard from a friend about a third party who for years struggled with sin. It doesn't sound like he ever shared that with anyone. He just held on to it. And it grew. And it became a sinful action. And now that person is dealing with the ramifications of that sin. Brothers and sisters, don't let that happen to you. Find somebody in your life that you trust, that you can talk to, that you can share these things with before they grow into something that kills you. Please, please don't hide your sin. Earlier I told you about hope for prisoners and the importance of, the, of confessing sins and having someone come alongside them. You know, they confess, I did this. I'm sorry I did this. And they have somebody that comes alongside them and holds them accountable for it. And whenever they go out, if they start getting, feeling the desires to return to what they did before, they go to this person. And they tell them, I'm feeling the desires to return to this. And that person encourages them to stop, to turn around, to get away from that area. 
We've got something better. We've got one another. People who haven't, for the most part, gone out and committed any major crimes. Right? We have brothers and sisters who we share a common father with, who are there, and I promise you, I guarantee you, if you look around this room, you will find somebody here who's willing to be that person that you can talk to, that you can say, I'm feeling tempted in this area, and I don't want to give it into it. Please pray with me about this. That is what we can do for one another. We can pray for one another. Please don't let your sin stay hidden until it kills you. Pray for one another. Share those things and pray for one another. So, as we conclude our investigation into prayer, we're going to look at the final perspective, and that's where we should pray. There's limited scripture that, spe that speaks specifically to where we should pray. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 5, and 6 that we shouldn't make a big production of our prayers by standing out in public places and praying so we get everybody's attention while we're doing it. Rather, we're to take our prayers into a private place and pray before our Father who knows our needs. We also see that Daniel, even before the king's edict that effectively took the praise of God out of the public square, used to go to his room and pray in private. There's a lot to be said for having that place that you just go to to be alone with God and pray. For me, it's the back porch. I love it in the morning before the sun comes up to be outside and just pray. I even hate to turn on the light so I can read. I like to just sit out in the dark and pray. I'm sure most of you have that place for yourself. If you don't, please find it. Find that place where you can go by yourself and just pray. Pray for yourself and pray for others. But there's also corporate prayer setting. It's something that Jesus did, Jesus and James instructs us to do. When we pray corporately, we have the chance to share with one another about our physical and spiritual needs. We can be honest about our failures and our sins, knowing that our brothers and sisters are there to come along beside us and lift us up before our loving Father. And we need to understand that our struggles are real and that we need to help lift up one another with those struggles. So based on our passage today and the overall message of the scripture, we need to be constantly in prayer, seeking God's wisdom wherever we are. Wherever you find yourself, whether it's on your back porch, whether it's in your favorite chair, or whether you find yourself in a dark prison cell, you need to pray wherever you are. All right, so now we've looked at all of those perspectives. Hopefully, you've seen the value of prayer. And if you're convicted of its value, please don't hesitate to exercise this incredible gift. You know, we stand up here, Travis stands up here, Harold stands up here, I stand up here. We stand up here and we want to give you something to take home. And what I'm praying I've given you to take home is a renewed desire to pray. Pray, pray, pray. When the Lord prompts your memory, stop and pray. When somebody approaches you and tells you about something, pray with them then. Don't put it off. 
constantly be in a spirit of prayer. Now, as believers, our prayers are powerful. We are seen as righteous before God. So let's use that power to the glory of God and to build up one another and our love for Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the gift of prayer. Please help us all to consistently remember the power and value of the ability to come before you and speak to you, the God of the universe who loves us and has made us your children. May our prayers be pleasant sacrifices to you, bringing you glory and honor as we humbly recognize how incredible you are and seek to live our lives in a way that shows you how grateful we are for what you've done for us. Lord, we know that we could never earn your favor, and we thank you for the power of prayer to remind us that we don't need to earn your favor, that you've extended it to us freely. Lord, use our prayers to fill us anew with the joy of your salvation. Amen.